Well, good morning, Redeemer. If I haven't met you, my name is Fritz. As uh, Murray mentioned, I'm not a guest pastor, but I have been gone this summer uh, for a sabbatical. And uh, again, just like to uh, tell you thank you as a church and leadership for that. And I'm very glad to be back. I uh, wanted to come back. And uh, retirement is for retired people. And uh, so it's really good to get rested unto serving the church. And so it is, a, it is a gift. You're always a little nervous of changes that are made when you're not around. And so I always encourage my elders, don't make big changes. But one change that I noticed uh, was donuts outside. Phenomenal choice. Great job, whoever did that. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 23 this morning or on your phone or device uh, if you're able. Uh, I was, we're going to begin the book of Romans next week, but I was talking to a mentor of mine and he said, you know, when you come back from sabbatical, just do something that God has put on your heart. Uh, you're going to be full in some sense. Just do that and then go into your next series. And I took that advice Uh, There were two passages that kept coming to me this summer. Uh, One was Ephesians 3, and we're not doing that this morning. Paul's prayer in Ephesians, uh, that we grow in the love of God and the knowledge of that. Uh, But the second, it demonstrates that, and I think gets at the same thing, and it's the thief on the cross. Uh, One of the times that it came to me this summer, I was visiting my Uncle John in Ohio, who's in his late 80s, and my Uncle John is sort of a hard man. He's a tough guy, German roots, and you know, just one of those industrious people that can turn anything out of metal into anything and restores cars. But my Uncle John is so aged now, and he still wears the same suspenders and the same jeans and the same checkered shirts, but he does not move around hardly at all. And he just sits in his shop. And this past February, his doctor said because of his kidney that he had a He had a few days to live, and he said, well, I don't want dialysis, just take me home, and the next day he was cutting grass, and he's still going. And I got to share the gospel for the 50th time with my Uncle John, who grew up around the church, in the church, has read the Bible, and doesn't believe it. And I said, Uncle John, I sort of have a new evangelism technique. I'm just going to be honest with you. It's called the thief on the cross. When you get to that point at the very end of your life and you know it's coming and you're laying in that bed, if the Lord gives you that, if you cry out to him, he will save you. If you turn to him and say, I believe He will receive you into his kingdom. And we know that because of all of Scripture, but especially because of this passage, the thief on the cross. Look with me at Luke chapter 23, verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. That is Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull... There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching 
But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gift of this church. We pray today that your spirit would indeed give us strength along with all the saints to comprehend the immeasurable love of Jesus for us. And for those who are not a part of your church yet, Lord, but you have your eye on them, that they would see today the love of Jesus for the first time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Murray started with a TV show. I actually have a TV show story as well. Uh, you may or may not heard of, I hadn't, uh, the show Lucky Dog. It's been on for 10 seasons. Anyone heard of the show? Uh, see, okay, one person. My neighbor heard of it because Lucky Dog, he is a lucky dog, came to his house and they are doing a show at his house and his neighbors. And what Lucky Dog does is they get rescue pets and they train them and then they put them in good homes. And then they sort of film that whole process and document it. And of course, my neighbor, who all sorts of things happen to like this, is on that show. What we are looking at today in colloquial, silly kind of terms is a lucky dog. This thief on the cross is what we would have said in old basketball terms, when you hit that fadeaway you shouldn't have hit and somebody's all in your face and the ball goes in, somebody go, lucky dog. This thief on the cross is saved at the very end, in the nick of time. It literally is what a buddy of mine calls a buzzer beater passage. He is an unlikely candidate. He is undeserving. He has no record of goodness. He is a lucky dog. And this is a hopeful passage. Because if you are a Christian, at some point... The shine is going to wear off and you're once again going to see your sin. Maybe over and over and over. And you wonder, am I in Christ? Have I died with Christ like this man? 
But it's also a hopeful passage because you have friends that you think are so far from God, it would take what? A miracle to reach them. That they too, like you, might become lucky dogs. Let's look at this passage under two headings. The first is this, the thief on a cross next to Jesus. And by the way, it's really good to see all your faces. just want to tell you that. The thief on a cross next to Jesus. What do we know about this guy? Very little except for the passage. Uh, we know that he is recorded here as a criminal. In Matthew and Mark's account, he is called a robber. That's where we get the idea of the thief on a cross. We don't know why he is a thief, why he got into thievery. <clears throat> we don't know if he was born into a poor family and felt the need to steal. <clears throat> we don't know if he was born into a well-to-do family and felt the need to steal. We just know that for some undisclosed reason, he became a thief. A thief dying on a cross. But not only a thief dying on a cross, but more importantly for us today, dying on a cross next to a Savior that dies for thieves on crosses. That's what I want you to see this morning. He's not just dying on a cross, but he's dying next to Jesus. Here's a few facts about him just from the text. He's a reviler. Verses 35 through 38 record rulers and the public and other people who were scoffing at Jesus, who were reviling Him, that were mocking Him, that were blaspheming Him. And even though verse 39 records that only one criminal joins that course, if you look at Mark's account, up to this point, the other criminal had been with the course as well. Both criminals... Mark records, were mocking and reviling and joining in the course against Jesus. And we get that. It's very tempting to do that. The more Jesus is sort of on the wane in our country, it is tempting to join the course and say, well, it must not be true. He can't even save himself. He can't even stand up for his own good name. And that's exactly what was happening with this guy. And he was going along with everyone else that assumed with the thought of that day, and we have this common thought today as well, that God helps the righteous. That was very common then, and it is the whole idea under karma. You get what you deserve. And if you are righteous, you're not going to be on a cross. If you're unrighteous, you probably deserved that cross. Or maybe he just thought, you know, my life's pretty terrible right now. I'm hanging on a cross. I would rather call some attention to someone else and their suffering. So maybe that's why he joined. Of course, we don't know except what the text gives us. But he also believed that he deserved to be there. Because we see that right at about the same time that we see this change in this man. Look at what he says to the other 
criminal. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, we deserve what we are getting. But this man doesn't. And you notice what happens to him. Somewhere between the time of his mocking and reviling Jesus and joining that course, he goes from this reviler of Jesus to actually, verse 42, requesting to be remembered by Jesus. Look at what he says. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He goes from one who is mocking Jesus to seeking mercy from Jesus, from a criminal who justly deserves, maybe not even in his mind, God's displeasure, but Rome's displeasure to a seeker of salvation from God. Do you see the change in him? At one point, he is joining the course, and at one point, he even has the courage to look at a person he was formerly reviling Jesus with and say, bro, you need to stop that. Takes a lot of courage to do that, doesn't it? What happens? What changes in him? What takes him from railing and rebuking Jesus to rebuking the other criminal? There's a couple hints in the text. Well, as we said earlier, he has the divine privilege and the divine appointment by God to not just die on a cross alone for his sin, but to die on a cross next to Jesus. Jesus is next to him on the cross. But notice what he witnesses while on that cross. If you back up to verse 26, Jesus is so beleaguered from everything that he has gone through He's been defiled, he's been abused, he's been beaten, he's been mocked mentally, emotionally, physically. He is so worn out, the people that are doing it see it, and they draft Simon of Cyrene to do the work of carrying Jesus' cross for him. His agony is that great. And then in verses 27 through 31, not only does he see Jesus, the man of sorrows, but he sees Jesus in the midst of his suffering being sensitive to the suffering of others. The women are faithful and they're mourning Jesus. And Jesus says, daughters of Jerusalem, don't worry about me. Mourn for yourself and the judgment that is coming. Jesus on the cross, if I were on, right now I've got allergies. We knew this was going to happen if you've been around this church. My wife said, it's from Satan. I said, it is, and it's ragweed too. But I'm, I'm, I tell everybody I got allergies. I'm suffering. I want you to know it. And the attention's on whom? Me, not Jesus. He is suffering for our sin. He is facing what none of us will ever face. And you know what he's doing while he's doing it? He is sensitive to the oncoming suffering of others. So he sees this. He witnesses this. But he doesn't only see. He hears Jesus. 
What does Jesus do in verses 32 through 37? He prays for his tormentors. They mock him, and Jesus prays for their forgiveness. And look specifically at what he prays. He prays that they don't know what they're doing. He says, God, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. This is like a mother looking at a child who has really, really done something hurtful, but they're so young in their mind, they just really don't understand the extent of what they did. This is you looking back to things you did in your youth and as a child and thinking, I had no idea what I was doing and how much those words hurt that girl in class when I said that. But now I understand the extent of it. And Jesus is saying, they don't understand the extent of what they are doing. I have more guilt on them than they ever could stand. And I want them forgiven. The very enemies that are causing his suffering. If you have suffered from someone, abuse or physical or emotional, you know how hard it is to even begin to imagine forgiving them or wanting God to forgive them, don't you? And that is exactly what he hears from Jesus. He witnesses in verses 38 and 39 a king who will not come down to save himself. He refuses the temptation that the same thing that he got from the devil early in his ministry to take care of his own needs because he is taking care of our needs. You see what this thief on the cross, indeed both thieves witness they witness the very heart of God. They witness the very demeanor and the love of God for sinners. Do you see this God dying for you? Do you see this God's heart for you like this? God wants us to see His love in Jesus on the cross. Look at verse 41. Notice what else he witnesses. He sees the limitedness of the law, getting what we deserve. We don't know if he understood the Old Testament, but he had some idea of right and wrong and punishments and rewards and all of those things. And here he is dying according to the law. If you are tempted to look to any law, Biblical law, cultural law, fashionable laws, laws of fashion, whatever. It will not save you. And he's giving up on it. He sees what the law gets him. And it's only condemnation. And then notice what he does. He turns to Jesus in verse 42. And he says, Jesus, I don't want to die like this. I don't want the condemnation that the law brings. I want instead something unbelievable, something no one would ever think possible. I want miracle of miracles. I want to be remembered by you, the righteous servant dying on the cross who forgives his enemies. I want that. I want to be forgiven. I want to be remembered. I want to be in the home of the righteous where God declares a people righteous forever. 
I want to be a servant in that kingdom forever. He sees something and he hears Jesus' words and he realizes it is actually possible. Have you ever been playing a sport or watch sports and there's that moment where the team is down, there is no way they're going to win it, no way they're going to come back, but there's that one player on the team and he just has that look in his eye or she just has that look in her eye and you know that that person can make it happen. It's what one author calls, and I love this phrase, the flash of the will that can. He sees something in Jesus that is a flash of the will that not only can, but will save him. And then listen to Jesus' response, verse 43. Truly I say to you, today, not tomorrow, not in the near future, not in the far off future, because bro, you're dying today. And I'm dying for you. I'm dying for your sin so that this very day you will close your eyes on a cross with condemnation all over you and you will wake up in the very presence of God. You will be with me, the second, the first, and the third person of the Trinity forever. Do you believe that? And he not only says that it's going to happen this day and he's going to be with Jesus, but he's going to be in paradise, what the Old Testament considered the home of the righteous. Two other places this word paradise is used in the New Testament. Revelation 22, when John is referring to the tree of life in paradise. In 1 Corinthians 12, when Paul is caught up into the third heaven and he sees visions that are so large, he can't explain them. He doesn't have words for them. And what this passage is saying is this man who is condemned for thievery is going to inherit that place. That's grace, isn't it? That's grace for the most militant non-Christian or the most militant professing Christian or the most ugly, gnarly, adulterous, rebellious, sexually immoral can be in paradise with God forever. I know that y'all, if you have seen this before on YouTube, would rather have Alistair Begg preaching today, this passage. I admit that. And if you haven't seen it, go watch it. But it's Alistair Begg, a pastor in Cincinnati, who has a beautiful Scottish accent. You just can't compete with pastors that have Scottish accents, and you get allergies all the time. That's okay. But he's talking about the thief on the cross. And how Jesus looks at him and says, He's demonstrating grace says, today you will be with me in paradise. And so he shows up in heaven, and the angel looks at him and says, um, who are you? And he goes, uh, I'm the thief on the cross. He says, well, how did you get here? He goes, uh, that guy told me I could come. He said, well, do you know justification by faith? He goes, what's that? He says, do you know that the scriptures were inspired by God? He said, I don't even know what the scriptures are. 
He said, well, what'd you do to get in here? He said, I didn't do anything to get here. Why should you be here? He said, because the man in the middle cross said I could be here. And it just sends chills down your spine. You know, we need, we need that renewal in us, don't we? That that's what gets us in. That's the love of God for us. That's our assurance that our sin and our condemnation and those things have been wiped away by Christ on the cross. And if you're not there yet, or you think God maybe has given up on you, do you see the flash of the will that can? Let's look very briefly at our second point, the thief on the middle cross. If you're a discerning listener, and you're even caught up in the beauty of what is being displayed here, this thief being forgiven, this thief being accepted, this thief being brought into the kingdom of heaven and his sins not held against him, you might ask the question, especially if he robbed you, what about his sin? What about those poor folks he stole from? What about restitution? What about justice and fairness? And you should ask those questions. We, want, we are so grateful that God is merciful and loving, but we do not want to lose God's justice and fairness. And really what this is asking is the question that Paul asked in Romans, how can God be both just and the justifier of the ungodly? How can God maintain His fair, righteous attributes and not punish this man? Why does this man not receive his due reward? And it's because there are three criminals hanging on crosses. And as Alistair Begg says, the one in the middle saves him. Or as John Calvin says, the one in the middle was the leader of them all. He said it like this, by hanging him in the middle, they didn't really know what they were doing but God knew what he was doing by sovereignly putting Jesus in the middle because that meant in their eyes he was the first place as a sinner. He was the first place as if he were the ringleader of all thieves. Martin Luther said it like this, that Jesus bore the person of a sinner and of a thief and not of one but of all sinners and thieves. And all the prophets saw this, that Christ was to become the greatest thief, the greatest murderer, the greatest adulterer, the greatest robber, the greatest desecrator, blasphemer there's ever been in the world. So if you think of Jesus just as a moral example and as a teacher and someone that inspires you and that you follow, that's not all of it. Jesus is considered the chief of sinners. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul explains it. He's imploring the church, he's imploring non-Christians to be reconciled to God, and he said, God reconciles people to himself, and he says this, for our sake he made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin. On the cross, you see his perfect obedience. At no point does he rail against his mockers. Does he defend himself? Does he pull out a sword even righteously? It's, it's perfect obedience. 
that in him you and I might become the righteousness of God. Let me ask you this, in case Mike didn't ask it this summer or Murray. Why are Christians very often, including your pastor, some of the most defensive people we know? Why are we so busy defending ourselves? Jesus is defending us on the cross, saying, I become sin. You have my righteousness. And as my pastor buddy said this week, he went on sabbatical and he said for six months, God had to sink that into him that it did not matter what anybody thought about him, even if it was true. Because Jesus was his defender on the cross. Galatians, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is what? Hanged on a tree. Do any of you feel dread when you get up in the morning? Or just like you're under something, whether it, maybe it was something that happened to you in the past or was spoken over you for years and it was just drilled in, or even just a little criticism, and you just you feel cursed. That comes from our first father and mother, that sense. And Jesus says, I'm the one becoming cursed for you. Let me ask a couple questions and we'll come to a close. Jesus is freeing us to let go of our sin. Both its guilt and its power over us. By taking it upon himself. He's asking us like the thief to look at the thief, that person in the Son of God who was declared a sinner on the middle cross. Are you tired of holding on to your sin too tightly? Are you tired of thinking of yourself just as a sinner, but not declared a saint by God? Look at the thief on the middle cross. Do you ever get tired of sluggish, duty-driven obedience and holy living that is not driven by the very love of God? God wants us to look at the thief on the middle cross. Are you tired of being enslaved to what other people think of you? Or even have done and sinned against you and the forgiveness that you feel so incapable of forgiving them? Look at the thief on the middle cross. There are a lot of answers out there for what is wrong with the world. And there are a lot of answers to is sin a thing? You can find any answer you want anywhere on the blogosphere of the internet and other religions. Christianity's is this. Jesus took our sin that we might actually be, in God's eyes, the righteousness of Christ. One of the reasons that we are going to do Romans is because over and over, Paul is saying, I've come here to share the gospel, to see the fruit of the gospel, that Jesus came to save the most religious, duty-bound, obedient Jewish person who is dying in their sin. 
and the most immoral adulterer, pornographer who is dying in their sin. That's who Jesus came for. And to justify them and to sanctify them, to adopt them into His family and give them His Spirit and to be His elect people. That they would live in a church just overwhelming with this sense of, I'm a lucky dog and you're a lucky dog. And let's live this out together. Let me just close with this question. Where are you looking for salvation? And is it working? When you get allergies on Monday and you start thinking about what your voice is going to be like by Sunday, you do one of two things. You just let the allergy run its course and that's not fun. Or you take the medicine and what happens? You feel sicker, don't you? And Jesus says, don't look to any of these things. Where are you looking? Look to Jesus, the man on the middle cross. Let me pray for us. God, as we come to your table right now, uh, we give you thanks for your amazing grace, uh, for a grace that sets us free, a grace that rescues us from ourselves. Lord, we thank you that as a body, we get to enjoy this grace together. We get to share it with one another, remind one another of it. And Lord, we pray that as we come to your table, uh, you would not just proclaim through this, but you would actually nourish our very hearts and our souls and the very grace of Jesus today. Lord, we pray this in his name. Amen.